thankful for, I'm thankful to God for the opportunity uh, to be here with you to share uh, his word um, for the invitation uh, for the warm welcome not sure that this is on or if I need it Philippians book of Philippians And I'll begin sharing in chapter 2, begin reading in chapter 2. Let me read uh, those verses from chapter 2 for you this morning. It reads, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you don't mind, I just want to bump back up to verse 27 in chapter 1. Verse 27 says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this time of uh, preaching and sharing, teaching, Lord. We Pray now, Lord, your word have free course in us and in this place, Lord. Um, have your way. Be glorified. Be magnified, Lord, in us, your people, Lord. Um, do what you will, Lord. I pray, Lord, for fresh anointing to preach and anointing to receive your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are my strength and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> St. Augustine, St. Augustine once said that the three essential components of the Christian life are as follows. 
See, you're ready to take notes here. <laughs> humility. Humility. And humility. I agree with St. Augustine. The sermon title today is A Servant's Attitude. A Servant's Attitude. This book of Philippians, uh, it's, it's really a multi-purpose letter written to the church at Philippi by the Apostle Paul. Uh, after salvation, Paul identified himself as a slave of Christ uh, who carried his life-saving gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. Paul had evangelized this Roman colony of Philippi and planted the first church there in that region. As the apostle went on striving for the gospel, he suffered much and, and was on several occasions thrown in prison. And it's from prison there uh, in Rome, we believe, that, that he writes this, to, this letter to the church, thanking them for their support of his ministry, uh, uh, encouraging them to have joy regardless of their circumstances, and pressing them to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ through unity. Uh, there's a mixed bag of folks uh, there in the church of Philippi. Uh, they, there's, there's a successful businesswoman in that church named uh, Lydia. Uh, uh, there's a, a blue-collar prison guard and his family there at the church at, at Philippi. And probably there's uh, uh, many retired soldiers in that church and and even a young woman that was set free from the exploitation of wealthy men in the name of Jesus uh, she she may have been a part of that church uh, all of these different individuals are called in this letter to unity called to unity the the text has a, a big idea in it uh, this this portion has a big idea in it that disciples are called to a practical unity that requires godly humility. Disciples are called to a practical unity that requires godly humility. Paul points to the evidence of practical unity in verses 1 through 4, and then he holds up the perfect picture of godly humility uh, in Christ in verses 5 through 11. So he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul begins this section of text uh, asking questions that he already knew had affirmative answers. Uh, Paul's if there question is, is not doubting the, the experience of the church in Christ, but, but calling them to consider their experiences and what it should be producing in the life of the church. Paul knew the answer to the question. He caused them to think about times when they've experienced nearness to Christ, uh, his leaning in and encouraging them through his word, the confirming of his love for them, Paul is, is wanting them to consider how the Spirit of God had worked in them, causing them to begin working out God's will, stirring up a new, strong compassion in them from deep inside. 
to really know Jesus is to know his love working in your life. There should, this should be a, a common ethic, uh, a common uh, experience to the Christian. Can you relate to the experience? Can, can, has Christ ever had to encourage and comfort you? In, in a time of loss, discouragement, or fatigue, uh, 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 just made you able to continue? This should be our experience. Have you ever been able to sing along with the psalmist to God? Uh, uh, the words from Psalm 94, verse 19, in the multitude of my thoughts, my anxious thoughts within me, your comforts, consolations, they delight, they cheer my soul. Have you ever been able to say that? Have you ever felt his spirit stirring in you and witnessed it working and others drawing you together? Paul believes he's talking to a group that has already tasted and seen that the Lord is good, uh, who, who have experienced his comfort and encouragement and, and felt the impacts of the spirit coming alongside them all. He, he's writing to those that have been moved in the deepest parts of themselves uh, uh, with compassion that drives them into action, not just a sad look. Paul thinks this is who he's writing to, but still he, he leans in to push them onward in Christ. They, they shouldn't lounge in the privileges of being in the fellowship of God, but they also need to walk in the purpose and responsibility of that life in a unified way. Even an, an apparently healthy church like the one there in Philippi, a healthy and giving church, needs to still be encouraged in this way. He goes on to direct them toward unity. It's a unity of thought and purpose. A single-minded, having a, a, a oneness of soul or oneness of spirit, a unity. He wasn't suggesting that they, that they be a group of clones, but instead just completely unified in all things concerning the gospel and living out its purposes. Unified. Any any football fans here? One or two. Amen. Uh, 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 the, the oneness, the oneness that 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 we're we're reaching for this oneness of mind. It could be described like a a great offensive unit of eleven players taking the field. Uh, each player, uh, the backs, the, the 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 quarterbacks, the the center, the the ends, uh, uh, the tackles. Amen. I was a tackle. The the tackles, the guards. Each player having a position and an assignment to carry out, but as a unit, they have only one purpose and one mindset, only one driving attitude. Get the ball a hundred yards down the field to the goal. Oneness, a oneness. Even in prison, Paul would derive a complete joy watching his team carry and fight for the gospel in a state of spiritual oneness. It is at the very heart of, of Christ's prayer uh, in John, the 17th chapter, that, that we will be one as he and the Father were one. 
oneness. This unity, though, is not just theoretical. It's it's a practical uh, unity. What what it does and what it doesn't do can be clearly seen and evaluated by the world to measure the truth and the and the power of the gospel. And it is being evaluated by the world. Amen. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only uh, look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. The text lays out here what practical unity looks like and what it doesn't look like. First, it's not selfish. It doesn't, it doesn't look to promote self, always believing that I or my way is the best way. Uh, uh, some in the church there at Philippi may have been showing, a, starting to show a, a my way is the best way attitude, which we know that it easily slides into a my way or the highway attitude. Uh, uh, it was starting to show, and Paul addresses it here, uh, uh, but, but, but that attitude can also morph and transform in, into a, 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 a seeking of a platform to gather those who agree with you over and against those who don't agree with you. Those things don't happen at Sycamore. But here at Philippi, here at Philippi, uh, Paul is teaching them selfish ambition and conceit ignores the warnings of Romans 12 and 3. To not think of oneself more highly than you ought. Unity calls for a godly humility, a divine estimate that doesn't falsely measure yourself, uh, your your thoughts, your ways as higher or better than others. Instead, it looks to someone else and says, uh, uh, you first. Uh, You count just as much or maybe even more than me. This this. Unity, this humility. Uh, this, this would have looked real strange and sounded strange to, uh, uh, and, and weak to those living in a place with a Greco-Roman uh, value system and, and Greco-Roman mindsets where might makes right. And, and humility is it's also strange sounding in our Western context. Amen. It, 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 uh, where, where a place where self-promotion and Prosperity at any cost, uh, even the detriment of others, is the norm. The humility is a strange, uh, a strange direction. But the church has always been called to be a unified example of God's way. Unity calls for a focus on others. It isn't satisfied with only a personal success or victory, but, but is actively concerned with what, we can, what can be done to help my neighbor flourish. It's worth mentioning that Paul doesn't suggest they abandon taking care of their own stuff and only focus on uh, their neighbor's stuff, but that they would devote as much energy toward uh, uh, their neighbor's cause as they would their own. The way of unity stands on the shoulders of the great commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself. In chapter 1, Paul demonstrates this attitude of others' first unity while in prison contemplating his desire to step out of this life and body and into the next life with Christ. 
<clears throat> which he knew would, would be better for him. Yet he considered remaining in the body, even in his current state, to be more beneficial for the Philippians. And he was content for God to make it so. But never being satisfied with, with his own example, as Paul usually does, he points and circles his argument back towards Jesus and his demonstration of godly humility, urging the Philippian church in, in verse 5, saying, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Almost abruptly, Paul goes into what become, has become known as the Christ hymn. Uh, scholars and smart folks, they debate whether this is original to Paul or, or one that the church was already singing and using. No matter the case, it fits the purpose of the argument perfectly. Christ is the standard of godly humility. Many a preacher has placed a hymn in their sermon to punctuate a theme or point, but we'd be hard-pressed to find one as appropriate as this one. Although the hymn provides right teaching about the person of Jesus Christ, it seems that Paul uses it here to inspire a right attitude, a servant's attitude that produces right doing, not just right thinking. It urges the church to have this mind, in themselves. <clears throat> this mind that if we belong to Christ, his attitude belongs in us. His example takes shape here in the incarnation, the coming of Jesus into the world. Just like John reported in the first chapter and verse of his gospel, that in the beginning was the word and that the word was with God and the, and the word was God. There he was God. His form simply being a representation of who he was by nature, indescribable almost. Uh, as, and as awesome as that fact may be, Paul puts a fine point on what comes next. Christ held a position with privileges and prerogatives beyond what we can imagine. There he was sitting with full rights in the glorious union of the Godhead, equal with the Father and the Spirit. And in his own estimation, consider it a status he was willing to let go of. And not only did he consider it so, he acted on it. It says that he emptied himself. He emptied himself, retaining his nature because he was who he was, but setting his privileges, his rulership, his status aside, and he took on another form, a human form, uh, with, with all that comes with it, with its weaknesses, with its pain, with its needs, with its desires. He let go of privilege to stand in the role of a servant. He was born. If, 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 it, if it hasn't started yet, it, it's, soon, it's soon to come. Lawns, stores, some churches are going to be crowded with small nativity scenes. But according to 
this scripture, the baby betrayed, betrayed in, the, in, in those mangers, the mangers of those scenes will never really capture the stepping down that took place in the incarnation of Christ. Uh, a pastor from Philadelphia, uh, Joe Folk, said it would be like a human stepping, in, stepping down and taking on the form of an ant. And I still don't think that captures it, but it's a start. But if the incarnation wasn't enough of an example of sacrificial humility, then there's the further humiliation that he took on. Before we look at that, can we just consider a question? Uh, I believe the, the church at Philippi would have had to consider it. The question is, is there any status or privilege that we carry that lifts us up over others that we're not willing to lay aside for unity and the furthering of the gospel? You said repeat it. Is there any status or privilege we carry that lifts us up over others that we're not willing to lay aside for the unity and the furthering of the gospel. Surely nothing we want to hold on to can compare to what Christ was willing to let go of. Jim Elliott was right when he said, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's look, 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 look at the further humiliation of the one that we're called to follow. It says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As if coming wasn't enough. Uh, being encountered as just a man by people in the world. Uh, uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and 16, said that although they, we knew Jesus according to the flesh, we know him that way no longer. Amen. Uh, he, he, he went on, though. He, he humbled himself further to face man's last enemy, death. Paul reminds the church that not only did he face death, but that he faced the most shameful, excruciating death that was available. On the cross, on the cross reserved for criminals, uh, he faced death. On the cross, the cross that Jews saw as a curse, according to Deuteronomy 21 and 23. The cross that the Romans thought was too vile for their own citizens to die on or even to speak about in polite company. The cross, the cross that no one in that day would have ever thought to design as jewelry or sing songs of adoration about. The cross he was obedient to death all the way down to the cross. Finally, the cross, though, would be the end of his humiliation. The hymn turns, <coughs> saying, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After all of his humiliation, the end of the hymn says that God stepped in and lifted him up. 
Because he humbled himself so, God elevated and honored him. It is God's paradigm that that we would humble ourselves and that he would elevate us in due time. According to 1 Peter chapter 5, God elevated and honored him. He, He gave him a name, a status above every other The title Lord, which was reserved in that day for the Roman emperor, uh, uh, now belongs to Jesus Christ. According to Isaiah in the 42nd chapter, the name of Israel's God, uh, that Israel's God was known by in the glory that he said he would not share with any other, he bestows on Jesus. He's not Lord over, look at the scope of it. He's not Lord over a, a city or a state or a region, or a, a, a nation, not just over the Jews, but the scope of his exaltation covers heaven and earth and anything beneath or in between. No matter uh, if it's physical or spiritual, those long gone or those still to come, every single knee must bow and confess and agree who Jesus is, that he's Lord. And all that Jesus accomplished at the end will be to the glory of God the Father. There's still humility. Someone hearing all of this uh, uh, could rightly wonder, if, if Jesus was already in the form of God, with privilege and prerogative, status and glory, why would he go through the incarnation and humiliation only to get back to the exaltation, regaining his rightful position? The short, mind-blowing answer is that in all this, he considered us more than himself. May God work in us the unity and the humility of the servant's attitude. Amen.